Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, the host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. I'm very happy that you're tuning in to this episode of This Week in the Word today. And it's called Hope for Hard Times, Episode 15, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the End of All Things. It's the episode for Sunday, October 15, 2023. You know, you might not know a lot about the ancient world, and I don't know that much, but maybe I know a little bit more than you, and what I want to share with you will give you a background, a a contact so you can feel the impact of what we're going to learn today from 1 Peter chapter 4. Normal life across the ancient world was characterized by a religious fervor with total involvement of spirit, soul, and body. And it was often associated with success in your career and your ability to earn a living. The highest goal for many people was an out-of-body ecstasy to rise above the mundane everyday life and connect with the gods. People felt real pressure from their family, the community they lived in, their workplaces, to stay within the favor of the gods to safeguard their financial well-being. They worked hard and played even harder. Alcohol consumption and psyche-altering herbals and unimaginable moral immorality were eagerly sought by the culture. Pretty much just like it is today. Would you agree? It's always been that way in the religious world. Now, I want to say this to those of you who are Christians. If you are a true Christian, then your bar hopping and clubbing days are over. And I'll show you that today from God's Word. And so is living fast and loose morally. That's over if you're a Christian. If you're a true Christian then your life will be increasingly devoted to living for Jesus Christ and building up his church, the family of God. And I will also show you that today from God's word. So think of this as a hitchhiker's guide to the end of all things. Now, by the way, why do I use that phrase, end of all things? We're going to see a verse today in 1 Peter 4. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Verse 7, it says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. All right, so let's get into this and let's do what we call exegesis. Now, exegesis is just a a big word, and it simply means to to bring out of the scriptural text what it actually says. You know, a lot of people, and, and you probably heard this done, and maybe you even do it, but it's really not the correct way to approach scripture. And that's to say, you like read a verse and say, well, to me, this means 
And that's not, that's not the right way to approach Scripture. When the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, he had a definite meaning for the Scripture that he gave to the prophets and the apostles. It isn't like what it means to you. It's what does it say? And then once I see what it actually says, what does it mean? And then the very last thing is what does it mean to me? In other words, how do I take this truth and apply it? So we're going to do some of that there exegesis that I mentioned a moment ago and help you learn not only what 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11 says, but also to kind of see a model for how you can begin to approach the Bible to be a better student of the Bible and to understand it more clearly and even teach others. So what we need to realize is is back then in the ancient world and even now, when someone was born again through a personal encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, they experienced life change. Something great and massive happened in their life. Did they become perfect in everything? No, they were born again into the church, the body of Christ. And this began to have observable impact on their daily life, how they treated people, how they were at work, what they were interested in and no longer interested in. And this made others who saw this either uneasy, like, hey, aren't you taking this a little too seriously? Or even unhappy and unaccepting. And then the suffering began. Now, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the End of All Things, we're going to see how to navigate the pagan culture around us. Now, there's always been only three types of people in the world. And this is from the book of 1 Corinthians. I can't recite the the chapter and verse, but it's in there. And in 1 Corinthians, we're told uh, in, in one part of a verse, it says the the uh, the Jewish the Jewish people are mentioned, the Church of God and the Gentiles. So every single person in the world, regardless of their race, uh, whatever they may say their religion is or no religion or whatever, every person in the world is either Jewish or they are non-Jewish, like everybody who isn't a Jew, or they're a third kind of person, part of the church. They're a Christian. Regardless of what their past was, now they're part of the church. But the church exists, existed back then, and exists now in a culture that from time to time, especially in America and in the the Western civilization of the world, there there have been centuries where people understood where there's a certain way to act and live, and then, you know, if you're not doing that, you're doing the wrong thing. That's just about gone. And so today, even though I was born into and grew up in what appeared to be, to in many respects, a... Uh, 
And then I'm not saying it was perfectly that way, but, but it, was, it was tolerant of Christianity. That's changed. Now, the world at large and increasingly in America, America is not generally tolerant toward true Christians and biblical truth. And it is becoming obviously more and more of a pagan culture, even in America and in the Western world. So Peter says, since we are living in a time where the end of all things is at hand, it's about to happen, that's going to have an impact on how we live. And this is going to guide us what we're going to look at today. So let's go to 1 Peter 4. And we're going to go through verses 1 through 11. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now, we saw this in greater detail last week. I'm going to hit the high spots on these two verses today. So you can listen to last week's episode to go deeper. Christ suffered when he was not suffering for himself. He did no wrong, no sin. And yet he suffered in the flesh, so he had a real human body. He wasn't like apparently real. He was actually real with a human body. And when he was beaten, he felt it, for example. When his uh, wrists were pierced by the nails on the cross, he felt it. So not only the suffering of having our sin loaded upon himself, he became sin for us that we might be forgiven, but not only that, but he suffered bodily as well. So Peter said, as we saw last week, equip yourselves with arms, like you're going to battle, carry this weapon with you. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, because you and I, as the the culture around us becomes darker and darker and more and more non-Christian, and more and more openly pagan, if I don't die first and you don't die first and the rapture doesn't happen in the near term, and I mean by like like that, like uh, the next few weeks or months or even few years, if things keep going in the direction they're going, we're going to suffer too. Say, but, but, but I didn't do anything to suffer. Exactly. Neither did the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins Of course, he was resurrected on the third day, but he died for our sins that we might be forgiven. We are also going to suffer without having actually done anything wrong to deserve that suffering other than we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a good thing about that. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let me tell you what, based on my understanding of things, When you start suffering for Jesus Christ, all of a sudden your life gets some real order to it and you begin to see what's really important and what's not. And you're not going to be trotting off to commit sin. You're going to be trying 
to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 2 that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now, let's go to the new verses for this episode today, and it's going to be 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 3, and we're going to go through verse 11. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Now let's stop right there before we go any further. Peter here is talking about the past lives of Christians. In other words, the Christians that he wrote to in this church that he wrote to, they could think back and say, yep, that's exactly how I was before I met the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's reminding them of their past life. And in the Greek grammar for the time past, it means it's finished, it's over with. So you remember me talking about if you're a real Christian, you're not gonna continue to bar hop and go clubbing and get into all the things you get into there. There it is right there. That's the past. You're done with that. No more of that. For the time past of our life may suffice, that is, is more than sufficient, <laughs> may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. And that word wrought also means it's, it's, a, it's, it's done and it's over with. And he's talking here about living the way lost people think is okay to live. Notice that back up in verse 2, it talked about that we are to live to the will of God. At the end of verse 2, well, here in verse 3, it says that before we were saved and began to live for the will of God, we used to, we used to perform and do the will of the Gentiles. And... That got us into a lot of trouble, didn't it? So let's read it again. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness. What is that? It's excesses of all kinds of evil. I mean, fill in the blank. And it's not the same thing for everybody. Lust, those are sinful cravings of all types, but especially of the bodily type, right? Excess of wine. This means, this is a, a great word here, is, is, I believe it's a couple of words that are combined into one word, but anyway, the idea is it is uninterrupted flow of wine. I mean, it never stops. Excess of wine. Were you like that before you became a Christian? Some of you are listening saying, I'm like that right now. That's not good. Especially if you say you're a Christian. And you may not even say that you are, but you're saying that describes my life and I'm a non-Christian. Well, do you love that? Or do you want to be loved by the Lord? Do you want to love the Lord? Which is it? You have to choose. Revelings, what does that mean? Well, it means wild feasting 
and merrymaking, even to the point of orgies. And that's all I'm going to say about that. This is a family podcast. But we used to we used to go this way. We used to travel this way. We lived, that is, we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings. What is that? I would describe it as drinking contests. Who can drink who under the table? But it's just the idea of just just going after being drunk and abominable idolatries. Did you know that worship in the ancient world, and I would assume all over the world still today, among those who do not know Jesus Christ, involves drunkenness and immoral acts that I cannot even mention on this podcast. And this is very common in pagan religions. Now, here's the thing. Over the years as a pastor, I have observed and even counseled some people who would, against Scripture and against my counsel, would begin to toy with, again, the life that they were delivered out of. And you know what? They revisited that, and I would say most of them never came back. They got trapped again in that lifestyle. Well, Brother Ed, were they saved or not? I don't know. Maybe some of them were, but I think many of them were not, and it just exposed that they were never actually born again. But you can't tell me that there aren't real Christians who can get drawn back into a lifestyle that God delivered them out of that that becomes a trap, a snare, and they need to repent of that. Maybe that describes you or someone you, you know and, and love and want to see the best for. Then he goes on and says in verse 4, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Wow. Now think about this. The, the strangeness here is in the part of the people who live that way, Right? but they don't know that. That's all they know. It seems normal. It's just the way things always are. It's the way they've been, their family's been, everybody they know has been. And they don't, you know, it might have a bad side to it from now and then, but they don't generally see anything really wrong with that. Wow. Well, they're the strangers, okay? (laughs) I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying they're the ones who are all twisted. Wherein they think it's strange. There's, in other words, there's a reaction of pagans and it's just outright astonishment. And here's the idea in the Greek. is continual astonishment. They couldn't get over it when a Christian got saved and he didn't do the things he used to do. She didn't do the things she used to do. Live the way she used to live. He didn't live the way he used to live. And it just baffles them. It's astounding to them. It's surprising. And every time they think about it, it's the same way. And every time they they realize that person is continuing to live with a changed life, they still can't get over it. So wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. That is that you are not anymore in eager pursuit with them 
to the same excess of riot. Now, what does that mean? It means a flood of a pouring out of that word, that's excess, and riot, excess of riot means wild living. In other words, a life with no moral restraint, no self-control. And you know, when you became a Christian, depending on the degree, the degree to which all of this described you more or less, and it may have been less, but I mean, you weren't a saint before you got saved. You are now because you're set apart for God. That makes you a saint, right? But before, you weren't perfect and everybody who knew you, they knew who you were. And then that change of Jesus comes into your life where you're set free and all of a sudden it's a big problem to the people who used to say they were your best friends. And now what do they do? Well, now, now watch this. Now they are speaking evil of you. <laughs> they, they, uh, they just run you down now. And it's because your life with Jesus in you throws light on their lives. And they've either got to repent of sin and turn to Jesus, or they've got to, to explain all this away and discount it and, and talk you down. Some of you know what I mean, that you are being attacked by people that you used to run with. And now, every chance they get, they talk you down, either to your face or behind your back. <laughs> you know, maybe you used to sing, all my rowdy friends are coming over tonight. <laughs> oh, no, they aren't. Not anymore. You, you belong to Jesus now. And you know the idea that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? Well, things that happened in Vegas should not happen anymore. Get it? I'm sure you do get it. Verse five. Now he's talking about those who are giving you a hard time, who shall give account to him. This, think of a courtroom scene where the judge is presiding. The judge is Jesus Christ, who shall give account to him that is ready. He's more than qualified to judge who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead, that is the living and the dead. Wow. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. That is, in this world, before you become a Christian, from the time that you were in your mama's womb, when you were born, you were born with a sin nature and you were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians says. There was no spiritual life in you at all when you, when you came to be. Then as you grew up, that sin nature began to be very obvious. Well, the gospel was preached so that the dead, that is me and you before we met the Lord Jesus Christ, we were spiritually dead, that we could hear the gospel and repent of sin and turn to Christ. Some of you listening, 
need to do that. You've never done that. You've been running from God. You know what? He's running after you, not to get you, to save you. Stop running. Your Savior is trying to help you. For for this cause was the gospel. That word means good news, by the way. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So one way to interpret this, and it appears to be the right way, is these spiritually dead before they become Christians, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. When you get saved, the, the lost world is going to pass judgment on you. But you know what? You are able to live according to God in the Spirit. So you once you become a Christian, from the world's point of view, you're going to fail the world's test. Like, wow, what a goody two-shoes. What a religious freak. Don't you think you're taking this too seriously? You know, that kind of thing. So you're going to fail the world's test, but you're going to pass the Lord's test. Amen. You know what is true of us if we've repented of sin and cast ourselves hopelessly upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will save you if you do that? Amen. Those of us who've done that, yeah, we get judged where we fail the world's test. Like, man, what a spiritual, you know, uh, uh, goody two-shoes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it can be even worse. I mean, there are places all over the world where demonic worship reigns. And when someone passes from death to life by faith in Jesus, their own family can literally, physically attack them or try to kill them. And even if their family does it, the community does because they are under demonic control and the demons are energizing them to kill this one who's come to the truth. And their excuse is that you're going to make the gods, plural, angry and they won't bless our crops or they're going to make us sick and all of this. I mean, it's it's very sad, but it's fascinating at the same time, the, the prison that the lost world lives in. So if you're a Christian with me, listen, you know what's true of us? Even if we die in our body, that is, we may get old and die or die in an accident or a disease, if we die bodily, it's not really us dying, it's just our body. You and I will never die if we belong to Jesus. The body can be killed, but no one can kill the real us who lives in that body. And remember, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. So we, we are judged by men in the flesh. That is, we fail the world's test because we won't play the world's game, but we pass the Lord's test. What a, what a great thing. And if you know what I'm talking about, don't you stop. You keep on keeping on no matter what happens. You know why? Because in verse six, it says, um, we saw there that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, 
but live according to God in the Spirit. Just keep on keeping on. Verse 7. Now, you might ask, after hearing what we've heard so far, why? Uh, I mean, why are we to become serious and, and live a different way? Well, A, if you're born again, you won't be able to help it. <laughs> but B, it's because verse 7 says, but the end of all things is at hand. That is the... Um, the, the, the final destination of God's purpose and program are about to be wrapped up. And then comes judgment, right? Now, if you're a Christian, you, you're not fearing whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. But as a Christian, our, our life for the Lord will be judged. It will be evaluated and rewarded or not rewarded accordingly. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now, the word sober, you could use our English words, be serious. Be, um, be clear thinking. Are you like that? Are you serious and clear thinking? It's not to say that you can't uh, tell your kids a joke and they think it's funny and you laugh or anything like that. But it's talking about, and it's not talking about being sober as, as opposed to being drunk, although that would probably fit, that will fit into this for sure. But the, the word means to have a serious and balanced life and outlook and viewpoint on life, to be clear thinking. Many people today live lives where their thinking is all scrambled up. They just can't make heads or tails of life, especially spiritual things. And yet once someone comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not saying they're going to be turned into an Einstein. I'm saying that as they get into the Word and the Lord renews them, their thinking is going to get more and more clear and biblical and serious. So we're to be serious and balanced, to have clear thinking, and watch unto prayer. Now this is something, it's interesting the Lord inspired Peter to say this because Peter could remember back into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of our Lord's betrayal when the Lord told them, Peter, James, and John, to, to watch and pray. Remember that? And Peter was even told that. Peter didn't do it in the garden. And I think he never forgot that. And so now Peter says, be ye therefore sober, that means serious and balanced, you know, clear thinking, and watch under prayer. If you don't know what's going on, and probably many times we don't. We're confused. We want to know what the Lord wants us to do. Prayer is always, it's sort of like a fire alarm. Pull in case of fire. <laughs> Pull that that prayer fire alarm. Not when you get in, a, in an emergency. I mean, you do it then, yes. But this should be our characteristic of our life. I can 
honestly say to you that now in my life, for a long, 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 long time, my first thoughts when I wake up, my first words are prayer. Say, well, what are you, some kind of spiritual giant? No, I'm saying (laughs) the Lord built that into me. I immediately pray. And it's not like I say, okay, I have to pray now, you know, like some kind of monk or something. It's, it's, that's That's the breath of my life. That's the Lord's life being lived through me, where my first conscious thoughts are to begin to pray for my family and others and pray for certain things. So be serious in balance and clear thinking is what that means and watch unto prayer. Now, verse eight says, and above all things have fervent charity. That's that Christian kind of love. God's kind of love. Have fervent charity among yourselves. It means to keep on keeping on having ectonese. What does that mean? That word fervent is used in Greek for a a horse that's running full speed. You can see all of the muscles and tendons of that horse straining in that full gallop. That is a picture of how fervent our love is to be for one another in the church among ourselves. And to be honest, we fail that so miserably But if we rely on the Lord, he will grow us in that. And it says there, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves for charity, that is that God kind of love, that Christian love, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Instead of a church being characterized by gotcha moments, it will begin to, every member love one another And even when we grieve one another and offend one another and maybe even stupidly insult one another, when we fail one another, instead of judgment and, you know, issues, there is forgiveness extended and true Christian love. That's what should characterize a church. Does it always? No. But that's our pattern. That's our target. That's our goal when we live on the edge of eternity. we Do you know what the doctrine of imminency means, that the Lord could come in the rapture of the church whenever he wishes? It means it can happen at any time without any warning as it pleases God with no time to uh, repent or prepare. That's what imminency means. And we live in that especially in our day. So he says in verse nine, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Hospitality is, is meeting the needs of other people with your, your home, your resources, your food, your time, everything. There were no what, um, hotel chains like we think of it today when people traveled back then. Although there were places they could stay, they would probably be beaten and robbed there. <laughs> you know, it wasn't safe. So when Christians traveled, or even when they had to flee due to persecution and suffering, 
hospitality by other Christians, feeding them and taking care of them and protecting them was very important. But it also put a burden on that family. Maybe they only had so much food and so much money. Now they've got someone fleeing persecution who hasn't eaten in three days. They've got to use some of their food to feed this dear Christian brother or sister and their family. You see what we're saying? And and that hospitality toward one another is to be extended without grudging, that is griping about it all the time. You know, get over yourself, right? <laughs> Verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So he talks about um, that hospitality, but now he's talking about ministry, how, how we are gifted by God to benefit the body of Christ. If you're really a Christian, God has made you really good at something that you contribute to your church. And some of you know what it is and you're not using it. Use it. Don't go get into the false modesty trap of, oh, I'm really not that good. Hey, God gave you a gift. Use it in his power. My gift is preaching and teaching. And even though no church wants me to be their pastor right now, they're probably right. <laughs> but anyway, even though I don't have a church right now, I'm still contributing to the body of Christ with what's been invested in me over the last 50 years, I'm giving back, as they say. I'm still preaching and teaching the Word of God. Why? Because it's a gift from God, and I'm told to use it to build up the church, the family of God. So we are to treat what God has given us like a responsible manager who will give account for what he's been given. So if you're not motivated yet, maybe that will motivate you. God is going to ask you, uh, let's just use me, a gift of preaching and teaching. God's going to ask me one day, and he knows, but he wants it for the record, right, that I, I admitted and agreed with him. What did you do with what I gave you as a gift? And I could say I did this and I did that, and it probably wasn't very good, but I tried to use what you gave me. And you need to be able to say that as well because the church, the family of God, the body of Christ needs what God gave you. Yeah. Verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, that concludes this passage today. Next week, if I'm still here and you're still here, we'll meet again at this podcast for episode 16 as we continue through Hope for Hard Times will be in 1 Peter 4. Hey, right now, like this episode, follow the podcast, and share it with someone else. 
who needs to hear God's Word. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.